let's uh let's get going here Benz. that's awesome uh thanks sensei good evening everybody and welcome to punch kick choke chat my name is sean benson i'm one of your hosts and we're here chatting with sensei frank clayton and i just want to jump right out of the gate tell us where you started your karate wow well first of all thanks for thanks for <laughs> putting me on your show guys yeah uh, thanks for having me so um i started karate in 1971 in hamilton ontario a place called eastern karate mm-hmm. it was uh february it was really cold out I'd walk by the dojo a few times and I thought, you know what, one day I'm going to actually be able to do karate. And uh, that's where I started. So talk to me about even just looking in the window. Like, what is it that made you go, one day I'm going to be able to do that? And what made you eventually walk in and do it? Well, there was a girl who would go into the dojo on her, <laughs> on her way home from school. And uh, I thought to myself, you know what? The best way for me to be able to introduce myself to her would probably be to join the karate club. But I was always interested in karate. Like, I mean, I think everyone back in the 70s was interested in martial arts at that particular point in time because they wanted to learn how to fight better or learn how to defend themselves. And uh, that was one way for me to get into the dojo. Like, I was super excited after I joined the dojo. My first instructor was Pat Omendolio in the dojo and he was a really hard guy four of us joined at the same time my brother um and two friends of ours we all joined the dojo on the same day and by the end of the month i was the only one still going really it was tough yeah um and so i I always love cracking open that era and so many of our guests are really from that that era that doesn't exist anymore i mean even the fact that we're doing this digitally it's just a whole new world um when you talk about people wanting to fight, do you think that was part of the, the culture in terms of the movies and the, the Bruce Lee vibes? Or do you think that's more like the streets themselves in Hamilton at that time? We're like, I better know how to fight. Like Sensei Suino talks about that a bit in, in his episode. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. I think in Hamilton at that time in the 70s, early 70s, nunchakus were still around. And there were more gang-like groups in Hamilton. There were Italians, there were people in Parkdale, there were people in the West End, and people would gather downtown in Hamilton. And sometimes there would be lots of confrontations, a lot more than there are today, that's for sure. Right? Yep. We don't have that typical gang mentality with knives and nunchakus and baseball bats. What do you think the change has been? Um, you got more shootings downtown Toronto, but you, I do think you do have less scraps. This is true. I mean, I think that uh, it's evolved. Like, I mean, I think that uh, getting in trouble back then was easier to get out of trouble, right, than it is today. Like, I mean, now people are shooting each other as opposed to uh, sticking with a knife. Yeah. Or the fisticuffs, right? I mean, you'll see most of the fights in bars today as opposed to, you know, at school or on the streets. So. Yep. Um, so what, what about that first month? Uh, I don't want to say what made okay. made those people you joined with drop out, but what was tough? What w- what made you go? I'm staying, and and what was what was rigorous that made the average person go? Yeah, no, I'm not doing this. The classes were two hours long, right? I mean, I did some boxing before in Montreal, and I mean, I enjoyed the workouts, but it was tough. The first night we were there, we sparred. A buddy of mine kicked another. We were 13 years old, all, all three of us. Well, my brother was 12, I was 13. And the other two guys were about the same age. And in the first night we sparred, it was tough. I loved it. I, I just, it was, it was thrilling to me. And my buddy kicked an adult in the face, made his nose bleed. And um, they sort of beat us around for the next couple of three weeks. But Frank DiLorenzis, one of the guys in the dojo, kind of took me aside. And I guess he saw a little spark in me. And he kind of mentored me through that 
particular time in the dojo. But after the first month, I, I realized, man, this is what I want to do. I want to be a black belt like Frank DiLorenzis or Mike Rand or Vince Castellano, all of these other people that were in the dojo. I think it was my first karate tournament that really hooked me on the dojo. Forget about the girl. She was gone by now. Yeah. Mm. Um, we're going to come back to some of this, sure. but you just teed us up. And I don't know if you did it. You wanted to be a black belt. What is a black belt? What is a black belt? Wow. <laughs> black belt just, <laughs> out, of the, out of the gate. Hey, man, what is out a black belt? Okay, Matt. So a, <laughs> a black belt today is not the same as it was in the 70s. The 70s, the 60s and 70s were the blood and guts era of karate. Like, yeah. I mean, in, my, in our dojo, there was a lot of blood. Every night they're sweeping up blood or mopping up blood or wiping it up and guys are getting broken fingers and black eyes on a regular basis in the dojo. But that's what toughened people up. Okay. So I think the 80s came along. And I think things got a little, I mean, insurance, you know, people getting hurt a lot more often in the dojos sort of, sort of toned that back a little bit. I live in British Columbia now. So in British Columbia, we had in the 80s, when I, when I came out to BC, there were kickboxing fights everywhere. They're few and far between now. So going back, getting back to the black belt, I think that black belts today are different than the black belts of yesterday. Not to say they're not tough, that there aren't tough black belts out there. There are tough black belts. Doesn't matter what country you're in. There are tough black belts out there. But I think that the, the education of what a black belt is, is important too as well, right? Giving the, giving the student the knowledge to become a black belt. What, what is a black belt? That's a good question. Mm -hmm. what is a black belt i you you tell us and then we'll go around and we'll give you our thoughts okay or we can go around and you can react to them sensibly, sure. if that's okay. what you would prefer okay so i think back in the day like they, they said that you couldn't have a black belt until you were 16 years old in a, in a dojo like at least 16 you had to be mature enough to get a black belt i get that i totally understand that but things have changed since then. Like, I mean, even in Japan, they have kids who are black belts that are wearing black belts. It doesn't mean that they're truly a black belt in the sense that they're 16 years old. It means that they've acquired a certain level, a skill level of a, an adult. Let's say a, a black belt junior from nine to 12 years old is the equivalent to a, uh, an adult green belt. Who's a tough adult green belt, okay? Then you have from, thir or from 13 to 16 years old, you have a kid now who goes for a, uh, another black belt, which could be a, another level then that's like the equivalent to a brown belt. And then the, the student takes their black belt test. But in the dojo, they have hierarchy in the dojo. If a student comes in at seven or eight or nine or 10 years old and has to wait 11 or six or, or sorry, 10 years to get a black belt, then an adult comes in and can get it in four years. And the adult or the, the kid who's 15 years old could basically do a pretty good job handling himself without an adult. Is he not a black belt? Sensei Suino, let's, let's, any and all thoughts. Hmm. That's mm. a tough one. It's a tough yeah. one because there, I think we all know that there are a lot of black belts being issued to kids that have no business wearing a black belt, right? Agreed. Um, uh, uh, but as you say, Sensei, there, there, there are 14 to 15 year olds, they're probably rare, who can handle themselves physically, and some of whom have the maturity, you know, occasionally mm. someone comes in who, um, you know, I don't know how many of one out of a hundred kids comes in and they're just different, right? They're more focused and more disciplined. Um, they can get there. We still at my school still have the 16 year old rule. Yep. Um, uh, and 
so far it's made sense. We just haven't, we've had some, had some kids that have done really well, but so far um, nobody's convinced me to, nobody's convinced me to change that rule yet. Yep. <laughs> Sensei Dovan, thoughts on what a black belt is? Sensei Clayton and I, in the pre-talk, we kind of started hashing this out already. You kind of know, like everybody, probably it won't be any surprise my opinions on it, right? You have to, you have to be able to actually apply your training, and so I think if you're young, you can't. Um, we even talked to Sensei Clayton and I had talked about, well, what if a person joins when they're like in their 60s or in their 70s, and um, at least in Legacy Shoronu, like I actually can say, oh, I've been here for that, like joined when I was when I was 18 I joined with somebody who was 62 and we both got black belts and we both had to do that stuff I think it really kind of also depends on the art is your is your art combative like if you're a judo or karate practitioner where sparring plays a big role in what you're doing um bunkai applications self-defense I just think with the the kids you're building them towards that um, you know, you said something, Sensei Clayton, you said about a green belt and their equivalent to this or that. At least I always remember Sensei Legacy saying, if you get a green belt in the karate dojo, you should be pretty tough. You should be tough and you should be able to handle yourself when you get outside of the dojo. And if you're a green belt and you can't handle yourself, you need to go find a new dojo to go train in. <laughs> and uh, on the youth black belt thing, I don't know, like, my partner and I just had a, a friend of ours who their son got a black belt in a, a different martial art. And uh, my partner, Christine, who's a yellow belt said, you should have your son go to the dojo on Friday night to the fight class at Randy. Yeah. They're not coming here for that. <laughs> like they're not, they're not coming here for that. So they may be a black belt there. They're just not a black belt here. And I guess that's what it boils down to for me. Yeah. Um, you might be a black belt somewhere else, but you're not going to be a black belt here. Um, and it's sad that people who don't train just think all the black belts are all the same. You stand there in the uniform, you have the black belt wrapped around your waist, and they just think everybody's the same. Or, or even better, if you're Kenny Ibu Suzaki, when Sensei Legacy graded him to a black belt when he was like, I don't know. 69 or 70 i said you know sensei everybody's gonna think he's your teacher now because he's japanese you just gave him a black belt <laughs> right so anyway i don't know if that answers the question those are just some then I, have, then I have another question then for you guys okay so um back in the 70s and back in back in the 70s like more we, there were more fight, there's more fights going on like on a regular basis how many of your students get in fights on a regular basis and how many do they win and how many do they lose regularly? Like we're talking in the last five years. Can you tell me your students are actually engaged in combat, physical combat outside of the dojo? Who, who are you directing that to first, Sensei Clayton? All of you. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Yeah, somebody has to answer first. Okay. How about you? Go ahead. Yeah, so for me, it would be uh, probably zero in the last okay. five years right? It would probably be zero. Um, okay. But I will say that, um, you know, I got a number that would be happy to do it. 
the opportunity. Okay. All right, <laughs> that, that's different. That's that's totally different. That's, yeah. that's totally different. The opportunity just never presents itself, and that that opportunity actually, like I have a five year old who came in here about six months ago, and it was funny because I was talking about you know, don't ever get in a street fight. Don't don't you know if somebody wants to, and I looked at him and I said, Reed, if somebody says to you, he's five years old, he's like he's so cute, love this kid. I said, Reed. If somebody says to you, let's go outside and fight, what are you going to say? You know what he said to me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's what he said to me, right? And I'm like, no, you're going to say no. You're not going to go fight, right? But I would have to say in the last five years, says Nick Clayton, in my dojo, the one who's gotten the most trouble is probably me, sadly. But how many fights have you been engaged in in the last five years? Like hands-on? Hands-on. One. Okay. Yeah. Anybody else? Zero for me. I, I know that none of my students have gotten into any fights and I haven't. Okay. Uh, I've had about three of my uh, kid students get in fights and the story is almost always the same. They, they, uh, I kind of wish it was different in a way, but they, they all come back and they go, oh, sensei, this guy started punching me. So I, pushed him away and I ran and I told on him. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, for social responsibility, they're, they're doing great. Yeah. I've had about three adults who have, uh, who have gotten in altercations and they have prevailed remarkably well, just, you know, like one or two punches or, or a, or a judo throw to the floor, boom, done. Yeah. Um, so definitely those three adults can handle themselves. No question. Right. Okay. Well, I did some work. Uh, back in the 80s, I did some door door work at a couple of different bars. I did some security work at different venues. When I'm getting paid to defend something, then I will engage in combat. Otherwise, I'm going to do my best not to. So how to avoid a potentially dangerous situation is extremely important for me to teach my students. So if I can teach them that, as well as teaching them how to kick and punch in the dojo, so they're not, if they ever are engaged, they have certain skills and certain tools to be able to defend themselves. That's what they need from my perspective. You know, unless they're working a job where they have to put their hands on someone, that's gonna take them to another level and to another place, right? Whether it's security or whether it's, you know, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I love that thought. Like, yeah. This, but it, you know, it's interesting when you say that, because when I worked, um, when I went to university and I worked in a bar uh, doing security work because I was smaller, I just found I never really got like nobody actually even wanted to interact with me. Hmm. The big guys would go over and they would get in trouble. And then I would go over and I'd say, Hey man, can you please get off the table? And they'd get off the table, sit down. And when I would go, <laughs> when I would go back, they would always go, how come he didn't tell you to go screw yourself and want to fight you? And I said, cause I'm little and they know that I know something. Right. Right. And uh, when I said I've only been one in the last five years, I've wanted to been in more. Mm -hmm. well, I don't well, know what that says about me, but they just <laughs> wouldn't, en they wouldn't engage me. Right. When it came, push came to shove, they wouldn't engage. We were yeah. sitting in traffic today going for a drive this evening and a dude was running along the street and he was just had a weird vibe. And I mean, like three lanes wide, like Lakeshore and Toronto traffic. And he ran over and we're watching. He jumps on the back of a motorbike and starts grabbing the guy on the motorbike. Now, he's pretty far back at this point. 
And then the motorbike guy just like jumps off the bike drops and then they get into a fight on the, on the thing. And I'm just sitting there and the girls I'm with are like, Holy shit. Holy shit. And I'm like, fuck, we got the top off. Like, why couldn't he have picked this car? <laughs> like we're prime targets in a little sports car, motherfucker. You know, it's one of the, and then we're driving away and they're like, really? And I was like, I mean, no, our day is much easier. Okay, you not- obviously, obviously you didn't play much when you were a kid. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Sean, we also were in your Porsche one time in Compton. Ooh. And you were talking to your agent and yeah. people yeah. were coming over to talk to us and I didn't want to fight them. I was like, we should just kind yeah. of get out of here. You should. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take a quick sec to well, tell that story. But basically the street had uh, the same number, same name in like Manhattan Beach or South Central. And this was back in the pre-GPS days. This was like, you're using your map from your book. And so I get there and I'm just like, this doesn't seem like there'd been, there's a bunch of guys playing basketball. And as I'm calling my agent to go, this, this doesn't seem right on the old school cell phone. Sensei's like, uh, Ben's, I think you want to start driving. And I was like, hold on, I'm just talking to my agent. So I'd say, and he's like, no, 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 you want to start driving. We look over, they just dropped the ball. And like nine guys were just like walking over just like really happy we were there and we're just like i'm gonna i'm gonna drive down the block a little and then we'll call the agent (laughs) well i think think that you know as far as black belts and self-defense goes i mean if you're living in a place near a border like uh windsor for example and young people are coming into windsor and you happen to go out for dinner with your wife or your girlfriend or whatever it may be to downtown windsor that's a potentially dangerous situation you may need to learn how to defend yourself against something like that does that make sense? That's, yeah, that's where I live, sensibly. You no, know, I, I know, I know that's where you live, but also it's the same thing in other, at other at other borders too, right? If you're if you're living fairly close to a border where there's lots, but well, Windsor's one of those cities where it's Partyville mm. for American young kids coming up, right? So, anyway, that was that was just my point. It says that if you're going to be living in a place like that, you're going to need self defense. I live in a small town of twenty thousand people. Right, and then I think the fights in power are rare and far between. Like, I mean, so if I'm going to teach the students who live in Powell River, I'm only going to give them the basic skill knowledge. They can learn how to spar, they can learn how to kick and punch and defend themselves in that way. I'm not going to teach them how to defend themselves against a knife or a gun or a stick because it's probably not going to happen. The kids who get in fights are the ones who are at school like you said before, someone had mentioned earlier that you got, they got pushed and the other one retaliated back or went to the teacher or whatever the case may be. But that's what's happening now as opposed to 30 years ago or 40 years ago. So what we teach today is different than we taught 30 years ago or 40 years ago. Punching, kicking, choking, we had to use it on a regular basis. And like I said, if you're working in a job where you have to do that, then you need that. In the dojo, a black belt, now we're going back to the black belt. If the black belt has a basic skill level to be able to defend himself against someone who doesn't have any skill whatsoever, that works from my perspective. Whether it's a little kid, a kid who's six years old, or, or let's, let's go 10 years old, a 10 year old kid with a good martial arts background who's a junior black belt can defend himself against another 10 year old kid who doesn't have any skill. Should, should. He should also have the confidence in his ability not to do something, right? That too. So if he's able to do that, and that would be considered like, you know, a black belt. He's, he's, he's learning and he's growing at the same time. I love that. That's, um, go ahead. That's perfect. And I love that. I, I 
can't agree with that more, that statement. I actually say that in here all the time that Matsumura, uh, Kemi Ogashiona, Miyagi Chojin, they weren't considered great martial artists because they could beat up other martial artists. It was because they could defend themselves against an untrained individual, which is why they got their jobs as bodyguards. And if they needed to, that's correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I love that. There's another concept before I ever took martial arts, like I spent my high school years lifeguarding and we yep. had a pretty fundamental concept that if there was yep. a fight in the pool, you cleared the pool, you let them fight because our job isn't to get in between two people at a public pool fighting. And when one of them starts to drown, the fight always ends. And then you go in and you save the person who might drown and that's it. And I've always kind of brought that into my martial arts a bit, like going, yeah, why would I put myself in danger unless it's literally defending somebody's life that needs it? Uh, otherwise, we'll let the scrapper scrap and walk down the street, you know, and get a nice uh, triple shot macchiato. Mm. And it seems to be working thus far in my life. I've had enough fights. You know, I've, I've done a lot of sparring. <laughs> Sensei Kobe and I have sparred a lot. I'm done. Like personally, I mean, I'm, unless I'm going to defend myself, I'm done. Done, done. That's it. I mean, unless I'm really, I have to defend myself or defend my family, I've got the skills to be able to do what is necessary to protect myself. So yeah, I'm happy with that. I am loving this chat. Why don't we let everybody know who we're chatting with? Um, All right, guys. Okay, so. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to do a quick round of intros here, a little bit of housekeeping, yeah, sure. and then we're going to dive back into this. So like I said, my name's Sean Benson. I'm one of your hosts, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We hope you're loving the new format. What a, like that to me is just such a joyous way to open a show. Um, we're here tonight on Punch, Kick, Choke Chat. Uh, we hope you're with us live on Zoom or live on YouTube. If not, we're really happy you're watching later or listening on any of the podcast platforms. Hit that subscribe and like button. Um, the, uh, the other people we have hosting tonight is uh, my sensei, Randy Dauphin. He's a seventh degree black belt in Legacy Shoren Ru. He's a seventh Dan in Hakusuru White Crane. And he's a fourth Dan in Iido. He got that rank from one of my other instructors on the call, Sensei Nicolas Suino, who's an eighth Dan in Iido sixth Dan in Judo, sixth Dan in Jiu-Jitsu. And our other uh, host who's here with us most weeks, who's not on the call, is Hanshi Legacy. He's the founder of Legacy Shoren Ru. He's a 10th degree black belt. And he's also a 10th degree black belt in Hakatsuru White Crane and runs the Canadian organization for that. And we're sorry he can't be with us tonight, but he's with us in spirit because we're a crew and we run this show together. Um, and I'm going to throw it to Sensei Dolphin to tell us about our guest. That's awesome. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, and we're all missing Sensei Legacy today. Uh, just had a migraine, can't be here. It happens. Sometimes the internet drops. I'm all of a sudden gone. Sean and Sensei Serino, keep it going. That's the value of having four people do this together. So I'm going to introduce uh, Sensei Frank Clayton, Wrenchy <coughs> Frank Clayton, uh, an international competitor and the head of the Canadian Martial Arts Academy in Powell River, BC, as he already mentioned. Uh, Renshi Clayton began his martial arts journey in 1971, same year I was born, that was a good year, in Hamilton at uh, Eastern Karate. Eastern Karate, if you don't know Eastern Karate, that's Sensei Legacy trained in Eastern Karate a lot with Benny Allen, Kwai Wong, uh, Bill Hines, those people were the ones who are kind of the roots of forming Eastern Karate. So he comes from that tough stock, those, the blood and guts area, as we were talking about. Uh, he opened his first dojo in 1982 in New Westminster, BC. 
he also has trained extensively with Richard Kim. Uh, the larger scope of karate and martial arts in general is to forge better people for a better society. Wrenchy Clayton's dedication to making these concepts the core of his school demonstrates his determination to make the world a much better place. And to reinforce that, I wanna mention a couple of things from his mission statement. Uh, to provide inspiration of personal excellence and integrity through leadership by example. I think that's a key thing, by example. Mm -hmm. um, to enhance our community and its citizens through positive personal development of our students. To ensure long-term growth of our school by providing outstanding customer service to our students and their families. All those things resonate with me. And if they don't resonate with you and you're listening to this, you're probably not a person that I want to know. So um, <laughs> other things I want to say, I always like to, um, you know, I, I am a person who, when I hear words that align with me, I always like them and uh, respect, compassion, gratitude, loyalty, honor, integrity, six facets that all true martial artists must embody. This is something that Sensei Clayton feels is, True. The fact that these concepts are part of the core of Renshi uh, Frank Clayton's dojo shows that he is committed to bringing out the best in people through martial arts. Um, listen, uh, I've, I wouldn't say I'm a close personal friend of Sensei Frank Clayton, but I would say that I'm a friend of his. Uh, I've crossed paths with him lots of times at the Windsor Open with Sensei Copeland, who Sensei Clayton is on the call now. He said, he was teaching and now he's listening. Uh, and every time I've been around Sensei Clayton, I've felt good. Uh, I've enjoyed the conversations. I've enjoyed watching him, seeing his training, listening to his advice. Uh, I don't have any negative experiences with Sensei Clayton and that's my introduction tonight for uh, Sensei Clayton. Thank you, not yet. <laughs> let's, see what, let's see what we can do in the next hour. Yeah, let's see where we go here. Yeah, so to everybody who's on the call live, there's a chat button at the bottom of the screen. And uh, Robbie, who's running the show behind the scenes, he just lit that up for you all. Please enter your questions down there. And assuming they're not absolute bullshit, we might ask them. Because um, we really look forward <laughs> to you being a part of our living history. Uh, we're really excited about that. And um, so, so let's just jump right back in, Sensei Clayton. Let, let's talk about that that time. You're, you're at Eastern Karate. You've been training now you're getting past the month. Now you know you're in there. You, you had this feeling, I'm never not doing this after the month. What was that feeling? Like, how did you know? You're young. How, how well, do you like, know? I, I had this great, great friend of mine. His name is Frankie Lorenzis. He, he was one of the black belts, one of the junior black belts at the time uh, at the dojo. And he took me aside and he was teaching me how to fight, you know, because I was a smaller person in the room at that time. And uh, he just, he mentored me. It was great. Hey, let's go to a karate tournament. So my first karate tournament was in Hull, Quebec. Uh, I've been in the dojo for probably eight weeks, two months. I was a white belt still. And they had a bus and I jumped on the bus with them with five bucks in my pocket, went all the way to Ottawa. I didn't realize was gonna, we were going to be there for as long as we were. We got there and uh, we, got a little bit, we got there a little bit late. Went into this room full of martial arts people. There was so much excitement going on. And I, like I said, it was like, it was amazing. Came back and after that, I wanted to win a trophy so bad. So 
but that was that was that was a great experience at that particular time and uh i will never forget it i will never forget the the kindness and the friendship of frank de Laurentiis at that time so he was he was a he was a really good instructor i mean i've had some really good instructors had some bad instructors and i've had some great instructors so frank de Laurentiis happened to be one of those good ones um, that's beautiful. Do you remember the, do you remember the rules of, of the tournament? You know, you talk about the blood and guts, the fighting, like, <laughs> you know, you're, you're eight weeks in and I mean, what kind of scoring is it? It's a uh, reverse punch, a lot of reverse punches. Like there was uh, the Taekwondo, Taekwondo guys were always kicking a lot, but the mm -hmm. karate guys like from Fern Clarus Club were the reverse punchers. Luke Mazenov, he scared me. He's the only guy that I ever got into a ring with that I was, I was fearful of for my life, Fern Clarou. Now, Sensei Copeland would know that name. I was a brown belt at the time in Hamilton, Ontario. And we were in the, it was the last four of us who were in the division. And I picked, well, he, they picked me to fight Fern Clarou at that point. When I, I already knew him from watching him fight lots of tournaments and winning lots of tournaments. And his reverse punch was pretty much deadly, kind of like yours, right? So um, I, uh, I was terrified. I lost two nothing, but my mom was there. And my mom was still very proud of me, even though I didn't win a trophy that day. <clears throat> how important? How much, how much yeah. equipment were you wearing? Like a mouthpiece and what else? Um, yeah, mouthpiece. I think we, I'm not. I think we might have had at that time. I think we had the John Ree. You could wear the John Ree punch, or he had no no pads at all, right? The John Ree was a flat, flat fisted punch, right? Where you put your hand through. It was, it was uh, yeah, no feet pads at that time, or the shin instep. We had those. Some people wore those. But it was when a guy threw a roundhouse kick, you felt it. <laughs> put his foot right through you, pretty much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, how important is it to be that scared before you fight? Maybe once in your career, not at least. Scared. No, 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 not that scared. I was, I was terrified. Yeah. But uh, to be scared when you're going, I think you should be nervous. Right. When, when, you're, when you're stepping in the ring, you got, you got, you should be nervous. You give you an opportunity. You can warm up before. Once you warm up before. You're still a little bit nervous until you start bouncing around and you're, you're engaged in the combat aspect of it because all of a sudden something else clicks in and takes over. So yeah, I want to go a bit around the horn on that. Sensei Sweeno, how important is it? Is fear or is it important? Yeah, I mean, I think if you have no fear, no anxiety, you're probably not paying attention, or you're one of those unique, right? Maybe yeah. you're Chuck, maybe you're Chuck Liddell, but <laughs> for the rest of us, yeah. For the rest of us, a little fear is is normal, and how you respond to it is 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 everything. You know, I think I I, I may have been as scared as as uh, Sensei Clayton a couple of times. Uh, you know, in judo matches and things. Of course, that's a different that's a different feeling because you're going to get slammed or or pinned um, and and lose that way. Not you're not going to get hit. Uh, uh, but people respond to it differently, and I think you you should be scared a bunch of times until you learn how to transfer that adrenaline to something useful. Sensei Dauphin? I always categorize fear into two, two areas. And one's kind of, well, they're both real, but one's important and one's not. Like what Sensei Clayton was talking about is he, he said, I was in fear for my life. Yes. Right? <laughs> like that's a good fear. Like that's a good fear, right? <clears throat> I remember when I got my yellow belt and, uh, came back to the dojo feeling like, and then since legacy came in and as he walked past me, he said, are you ready to fight the old man tonight? And at that time he was like 42. So I was like, I didn't consider him an old man. And I thought, Oh, he wants me to fight like Kenny, he was And I was like, okay. And then one of the brown belts bumped me and said, 
he means you're fighting him. And I was afraid. I was instantly afraid. I was like, what in the hell did I do? Why do I have to fight him? What did but he fought everybody that night. It wasn't just me. He fought like the entire class. He just went through all of us. I find the other fear is ego driven, right? You don't want to get embarrassed. You don't want to be centered out. That prevents you from moving forward. And that's the one I have, I guess, kind of less tolerance for. You need to just step forward. Since Clayton just talked about it. He must have been afraid. Six weeks in, white belt, leaves okay. Hamilton, drives to basically another country, which is Quebec, yep. <laughs> right? <laughs> Where they speak a different language. You know, that's a different type of fear, but the ego got put aside or whatever, and he found himself there competing. That's martial artists. They got to sack up and be willing to get embarrassed. Be willing. Sensuino says it. In order to be good at something, you first have to be willing to be terrible at it. Mm. And that means you got to put your ego in your back pocket and right. just be terrible. Right. Yeah. But I, I think it's good for you to be afraid. And I think uh, you should assume, especially in the beginning, the other person's better than you and you should use that fear. Mm. I love that. I love that. It's not my story, so I'll make it super brief, but I love the idea that GSP before his first fight, like, couldn't sleep for two nights and threw up and then on the Rogan podcast, he's like, Oh, so now that doesn't happen anymore. He goes, no, now it still happens. I just don't let it throw me. That's right. Yeah. Like, Cause I feel, I feel anxiety and fear before any tournament, anytime we fight sensei, like it's just there. And I'm like, cool. That's going to be part of this. It's good for you. Yeah. It's funny. You say that. I don't know. Sensei Clayton, do you feel, I don't know. On Friday nights here, we have a fight class. So you're talking about the blood. There's blood here every Friday night. Like if you go in that bathroom, it's like the shining after on a Friday night. And uh, when I come in, I always kind of Bats. am laughing because Bats. I'm like, hey, Benson, can you feel the tension in the room? Can you feel everybody who's like crapping their pants? And mm. you almost get a scent for it. I don't know if you're like a shark, but you can almost feel the fear in the room and the anxiety. Yeah. but they're all in they're yes. all in right so they know what they're getting into when they come in the gym on that friday night exactly yeah um yeah. talk to us about eastern karate who was there who stood out for you you know we've we've got a lot of like those are some like major names in canadian martial arts and you know i'll just give you the floor to kind of like and we might prod some questions when we hear some names but who stood out for you? What was what were their strengths? Any anecdotes? Like, where do you want to go with that? Because we're here to listen. Okay, so in the in the dojo at that time, there was Pat Omendolio. I believe the dojo was owned by Vincent Joey Castellano. Okay, so they owned the dojo, and the top fighters in the dojo were the, um, Frank DeLorenzis, Mike Rand, Vincent Joey Castellano. They also did kata as well. So whenever we went to competitions, they were the guys that were from our dojo or our club at that time that were doing well in competition. They had a Kitchener club, was in Toronto, and Sensei Hines was always out there. Like there's a lot of dojos that were out and around in that, in that, in that era. So was the, there was a Bill Baisley's club up in uh, the, the uh, east end of Hamilton. There was Greg Miller had a club. Uh, Don Warner had a club. So there was a lot of people who had clubs that were going to competitions. But in the dojo, it was like Vincent, Joey Castellano, Frank DeLorenzis, and Mike Rand. Those were the guys that I looked up to as, as mentors in the dojo. Mike Rand, 
could do the splits. He threw hook kicks, jumping, spinning hook kicks. He was absolutely amazing. When you're a kid, that's what you're looking at. You're going, wow. And you know what? Been knocked out a couple of times by Mr. Frank DeLorenzo. It's my buddy and pal. I'm sure if he's listening. <laughs> but yeah, being knocked out is not fun. Sensei, what was the dojo like? Like even the, dark. the room? Like- dark. Like, I mean, the colors were like black and red back in the day. Kind of like, uh, what's his name? Sensei Smee in, your, in Windsor. Got a really dark kind of dojo. Uh, yeah, the smells were sweat. It was dirty. Like a dojo, jock straps and torn geese laying around. But uh, there was a, there was a, a large Italian faction in the dojo, right? Because I think it was owned by the Castellanos. And a lot of the people that were there were mostly Italians. The instructors were Italians too as well. But yeah, we got four black kids coming into the dojo. And yeah, I was the only one that survived. What was the floor like? Was it uh, just... Hardwood. Oh, it was wet. Always. Like I said, you go with... <laughs> cleaning up blood and stuff but I mean today I mean my insurance I don't know what the insurance is like in Ontario but I know that today in order for me to run sparring in my club we have to have helmets they have to all have to wear helmets they got to wear gloves they got to wear mouth guards they wear shin pads in the dojo and outside when they go into competitions my insurance is fairly high if I remove the helmet I pay more insurance right so liability insurance is pretty high out here I don't know what it's like over there, but that's why my dojo is ran a little differently. And then in my dojo, I target my market. My market is younger people, kids. And we don't have very many adults in my program. So my market is mainly kids in my school. Right now, when I started karate, mainly adults. In order to get your next belt in my dojo when I first started, you needed to spar and also go to a tournament. I've changed that. <laughs> Do tell. That's probably because the tournaments aren't as good anymore. <laughs> that too, man. No, no, trust me. They're not that good anymore. Like, I mean, and they're, I mean, you go to karate tournaments these days and the adult division is small. Like, I don't know the last time you were at a karate tournament, man, those adult divisions are small. They were the biggest divisions in the seventies and eighties because everyone wanted to prove themselves. Mm. What school you're from. Right. I know I mean, one that's still good. I know one good tournament. Which one's that? The Windsor open. Yeah. Windsor Open. It's, it's the best tournament in Canada. Yeah. Well, I yeah, run I a tournament with Sensei Legacy too. So it's it's up there with our, like, yeah. Is Sensei <laughs> Copeland on there? If Sensei Copeland's on there, I just haboed him. Yeah. Sensei <laughs> Copeland is always the center referee <laughs> at our tournament as well. And one of the things I like about his tournament, Sensei Clayton, and actually when you referee, one of the things I really like is that there's no slapping. There's no weird head things that get a point. Hmm. There's no... What is that? Yeah, you got to do what Sean did. You got to punch somebody in the middle of the body with a reverse punch that launches their mouthpiece out of the ring, and then you get a point for that. That's that, guy, that guy spit the mouthpiece out. <laughs> definitely spit the mouthpiece out. But, you know, this isn't about tournament comparing, but, uh, you know, the last two times I competed in our Matsumura Challenge, the Black Belt Division had 16 adults in it. And that was, I think, 25 and older were those divisions. So... Pretty healthy, you know, getting four fights to have to win. Yeah, and you lost to a guy who flew in from Mexico, right? That's who you... Yep. Yeah. Yep. How long ago was that? Just before COVID was the oh, okay. last. And then I think it was two years before was the last time I competed because I had a year off for being out of town. But... Uh, what was your largest division you were in? I mean, for me, it was 16. But since it opened, we know... 
if there were the largest I've ever been in, I think that's 16. about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, my largest division would be in Venezuela. I think there was like 26 people in that division or something like that. It was ridiculous. It's 26 or 27 people in that division. Okay, ready, ready for this one? 253 people were in my division in the World Ooh, Championships three, in Okinawa. Five. That's a lot of people, dude. I had three fights that day. I was done. Right, and the guy who won was from Venezuela. I mean, that was, we had eight rings going with eight, with the, 16 eight competitors on on each ring so there are eight rings that are full they do that you go upstairs you get marshaled again for your next session it was crazy it went on for the the entire day just sparring for that Ooh. division i know what what year was that 1998 i mean i'll check that for you mm, just wondering yeah. um i don't know what it's like in canada but but here uh bjj has taken up Oh yeah, most of the space in the competition world, they'll have two or three hundred competitors in the in a BJJ. You know, in our judo our judo uh, tournaments now, you know, if you have a hundred people, that's huge. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. I think BJJ has taken the adults a lot, a lot of the adults as well, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I don't know. Everyone has an opinion about that, so I'm going to leave that one alone. <laughs> uh, I was going to ask Sensei Suino. So, so you've seen the same in the judo world, is that? like adult type competitions have, have diminished over the time you've yeah. been doing it. Yeah. There's a, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, you'd go to three to 500 people, you know, kid yeah. judo tournaments. Uh, yeah. And then it, and then it went down and then it went back up and then it went down again. And BJJ is big uh, now, but you know, the judo world, people are constantly complaining. They can't fill their dojos. We have a huge judo program, um, but That's a lot of people can't fill their dojos. Um, I have some theories about why that is. I'd like to hear that, actually. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that the Olympics has kind of done that on, on a lot of damage to Taekwondo and if potentially karate if it gets in there. That's it. We're done. So, so <laughs> what I see is most judo clubs, I mean, there's, there's exceptions, but most judo clubs end up being, you know, half a dozen guys that are real scrappers that go to the tournaments and there's just not room for good training and good, good technique for the average person who just wants to come in and learn some stuff that'll never be a competitor. Um, we try to make the environment really safe, yeah. have a lot of fun. Everybody, we're all servant leaders. Every black belt in my judo program is a servant leader. Their job is to help others grow. And then we get better together. Right. And as a result, we got 50 people in our judo program. And I don't know, there are very few judo clubs outside of like San Diego and, uh, and some on the East coast that are that big just yeah. because we're we're welcoming you know welcoming everybody yeah, yeah and you can still have a you can still have a fighting class right or a uh you know advanced classes and take your black belts and let them do what they would do otherwise but it, most places seem to cater to their turn their competitors and uh this is not good for enrollment in my view yeah so sensei clayton can you crack that open a little for us you know i, I just wrote down olympics equals we're done uh, yeah, I love well, the definitive nature of that. What's, no, we're, what's we're, your we're, 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 If you look at Taekwondo, like, I mean, I can remember in the 80s and the 90s, Taekwondo clubs were everywhere, everywhere. Like, I mean, you know, you go a mile, there's another Taekwondo school. I mean, in the province of British Columbia, there's not very many of them anymore. Because if you put Taekwondo, if you're an Olympic, Olympic Taekwondo school, then you're basically, if you're saying that, then you're going to be bringing people into your school to train them for the Olympics. So where's the recreational traditional Taekwondo program then? 
where to go. Like I said, if it happens, if it happens to karate, I don't think a lot of karate people understand this from my perspective. I, that's only my perspective. But if karate becomes an Olympic sport, I believe that the government will then not, sorry, let me rephrase that. Let me, let me roll my tongue back in my head here. For a <laughs> I believe that the only programs that people are going to want to go to are the Olympic programs and forget about traditional karate. Traditional karate has way more value, way more value than sport karate. It has way more value, right? Because you, in, in competition, your ego takes place. You bring your ego with you because you need your ego in order for you to intimidate the other player. You need your ego in order for you to be number one. You need your, your ego to do kata at a high level. You cannot leave it. In, the, in traditional karate, your ego is been taken out of it by practicing kata just for the joy of practicing kata. You're not in practicing karate anymore. You're practicing sport karate. And if we do that, I think traditional karate, when I say done, I think we're going to lose a lot of traditional karate people. They'll be gone. And the, the essence of karate will disappear. I love hearing that perspective. Sensei Dauphin, do you agree, disagree, different thoughts? I hope not. I, I can't say if I agree with that or not. I can only... Look, I, I think when I watched the Olympic karate practitioners, it was so cool. Like, I just went to Driftwood on Tuesday night. Uh, Kyoshi Rice's dojo, a few students from here went um, with a, a bronze medal Olympian from the United States and did a kata workshop. And she's a phenomenal athlete. And when I listened to her talk, <clears throat> she was also very, like, very vested in, in the karate principles. Um, the way she portrayed herself. So I, I like that. Um, I guess the thing I, I feel is that if your drive is to win a gold medal, <clears throat> then you're going to shrink it, what karate is down to whatever that rule set is to get the gold medal. And then everything else kind of gets thrown out, right? It gets all just chucked off to the side. I think most of the people who competed, like Sensei Clayton, probably yourself, like, I competed for a couple of decades and why I stopped competing is because I got tired of not doing the totality of karate. I got tired of not being able to train all of my katas. I get, and by train them, I mean, get hands on with people in my kata. I had to spend so many hours just doing the execution of the kata alone in the room. And even the fighting, the fighting wasn't like continuous fighting where you're like mixing it up with somebody. It was, point, stop, point, stop. I just got tired of that. I wanted to get back to just like more yeah. continuous fighting, training all my katas, training the bunkai of the katas, the totality. So I guess, I guess I'm talking myself into the fact that I do agree with you. That if, <laughs> if it becomes everything is geared towards winning the gold medal, then the rule set is going to determine what karate becomes rather than what karate actually is. And since we know, does, does, did judo get helped or hurt by the Olympics? That's a great question. Um, you know, judo is massive around the world, much bigger in Europe and Asia than it is in North America. Um, uh, and, and it becomes a, it becomes a, in a way, a feeder program for more traditional, you know, judo is a, a fairly modern sport, um, but there are elements that are not practiced in 
tournaments very much. There's judo kata, there's judo self-defense, there's more philosophical yeah. stuff. And usually what happens is, Randy, like you, they uh, folks get into competition, then they get the age out or the injure out, and then they start pursuing the the, the deeper aspects, right? The, the kata and the philosophy a lot more. Um, I love the creativity that you have to have to win judo tournaments in these days. Uh, uh, but it's a, it's, so it, it's sort of the difference between an athletic martial art and a, and a classical martial art, right? You do an athletic martial art in your teens and your twenties, maybe in your thirties. And then most of the guys go back and start training the classical side of it a little bit more. I wonder too, thanks Sensei Suino, if, if ego isn't a part of the diminishment of let's say adult karate because of MMA, you know, because before, you know, back in the nineties, you're, you, you win a karate tournament. Everyone's like, holy shit, you won a karate tournament. Now it's like, well, was it full contact? You know, were there takedowns? And so all of a sudden as an adult, you got to know that your karate tournament meant something because every keyboard warrior is like, yeah, but if it didn't have this, this, and this, it wasn't MMA. And therefore it's mm -hmm. just that. And I wonder if okay. egos prevented a lot of adults from just going, this is what it is. And this is what it is to me. I don't know. Cause I, yeah. that's my thought about why BJJ is so popular. Yeah. Yep. I agree with you. 100%. Cause you can go hundred percent accepting <clears throat> body slams and strikes. And so everybody, but you can't punch hundred percent in a non-full contact tournament. So you don't get the validation. Who cares what those guys think? <laughs> those are the those are the Instagram people. Those are the ones who just want to post a nice picture. You know, Sensei Clayton, one thing I would say when you said about you started to talk about the government, and uh, mm. I don't know what it was like in BC during the shutdown, but here there is like a lot of tension when things are opening up because they were starting to say things like you got to be part of the PSO, right? Um, and people were like, I don't want to be part of the PSO. Like the guy who's running the PSO, I don't like that person. I don't like those people who are in there. I don't want to, I don't want to be under their thumb. We need um, to be careful. Yeah, right? we need to we be need careful to, for we sure. Need, we, need to, we need to, what's the word I'm trying to say is we need to come together, right? As, as martial artists who say, you know what? You guys can have your thing, leave us alone, right? If we choose to participate, great, otherwise, leave us alone because you don't have anything that we want or need, right? I, I, there's nothing that I want from them, right? I mean, they claim that if I join them, then I become legitimate karate. But if I quit, then I'm no longer legitimate karate. However, my legitimacy doesn't come from them. It comes from the government of Okinawa, right? So, and well, we need to see your certificate. My certificate looks like this. Oh, that looks very good, but we have to authenticate it. <laughs> right. We got problems now, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, the problem I have with some of them is just also none of the right people want to be sitting in the seat, right? Like if you were the PSO of right. BC, if you were the PSO of BC, I'd be like, that's awesome. British yeah. Columbia is in good hands. Yeah. If Sensei Copeland was the PSO of Ontario, I'd be like, that's awesome. But it seems to be people who are not the best martial artists who get into those seats. Okay. Sometimes there's some great ones too. Like, yep. I haven't met any. <laughs> so this prompts 
a question I'd love to ask. And okay. I don't think we've talked too much about this on the show, but let's start with you, Sensei Clayton, and you, Sensei Suina, the new Sensei Dofa, is how much hierarchical connection to organizations is beneficial? And at what point is it too much and it's only serving itself? Within a club and where the club fits within the bigger picture. Who's mm. going first on that? Uh, Sensei Clayton. Okay, so um, from, from what I've seen over the past 30 years in the province of British Columbia, like teaching karate here, or 40 years teaching karate here, that the certain organizations are good for people that don't have, have small clubs, that they need, they need a sense of belonging. They may not have a sensei mm. somewhere else in Japan, or they may not have a sensei somewhere else, that they need some legitimacy. Right. And some of those clubs cannot afford insurance on their own, like paying liability insurance to run a karate dojo in a community center. The, in, in, in the province of British Columbia, unless you're a member of the karate organization here, the Canadian karate organization, then they will not allow you to run a karate program in there. Right. Which is for them, they need, they need that group. Some people need it and some people don't. Right. However, they're doing everything that they possibly can to push that mandate that all karate clubs belong to the national governing body of the country in order for you to practice karate. But it's just, it's not right. It's just not right. What about you, Sensei? So you know how important is, is you know, it, for JMAC to be part of any other organization, be they either you know, groups just to promote or political or, or even just lineage. Yeah, well, I think there's two very different things there. Like uh, Clayton Sensei was saying, um, you know, you have a certain administrative need to be a part of, you know, I can join the USJF, United States Judo Federation, and have insurance for my dojo and insurance when my folks go off to tournaments. Um, we don't have a national or a state governing body for martial arts yet. I hope it doesn't, doesn't ever happen. Um, but then there's the other the other aspect, which is the the direct connection. You know, if uh, if you've trained with somebody and who's a great sensei, that's always the the most important thing, right? That you don't mm. need validation from an association. Mm. So if someone comes to me and says, "Oh, you got to be part of this organization," I'm gonna look at it with uh, with a real skeptical eye because you know I've trained directly with some of the best martial artists in the world in in Tokyo, and you know now you've got a couple of guys that you know, never left Rochester, New York to tell me what I got to do. Just doesn't make much sense, right? <laughs> That's it, Opa? That's hilarious. <laughs> I know those guys in Rochester, New York. <laughs> I didn't mean those two guys. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I, Sean, you know, it depends on the organization. I guess right. I would say like some organizations are good and some are bad. Um, what is the goal of the organization would determine whether it's a good organization or a, if the goal of the organization is to propel the art forward over decades and keep it going the way, then that's probably a good organization. If the, the goal of the organization is to put you under their thumb, um, get money, get your time, that's probably not a good organization in my opinion. Um, it kind of depends on you too. Right, since Sasuino talked about it, I know he's so strongly associated with EMF because of Yamaguchi Sensei that his loyalty to Yamaguchi Sensei means that he that's 
he's going to be loyal to the spirit of Yamaguchi through that association always, which mm -hmm. I think that's a good reason to be associated uh, with something like that. So that's the part where it depends on you, right? Yeah. A lot of people want to join an association because they just want to puff their chest up, stomp around and say, I'm part of this association with all these people in it. And that means I don't have to sweat as much as you because I have more legitimacy because of the group of people that I have dinner with um, uh, two or three times a year. Well, good for you. Um, and then I would say the final thing about the associations are nobody really cares. right? Like, I mean, in the end, nobody cares. Nobody on this call cares what association I'm linked to. Definitely no government body really cares. They just care about money and taxes. And my neighbor doesn't care. My neighbor doesn't care what association. And if I got to use my martial arts, I guarantee that like if I leave tonight and somebody jumps on the back of my bike and I say, hey, I'm a member of the Shudokan. It's not going to save me one little bit. Ah. Not I love that though. That's the thing now. Just pull out your badge. Hey, just announce your lineage. Step back, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's really awesome. Um, we got a ping right now at 930, which means Ooh. it's time for the 10 questions, Sensei. Me? Yeah. Only you, by the way. These are only for you. Um, they've been answered by our other two teachers. Um, the, uh, the 10 questions are something we ask that you answer as impulsively as you can. Okay. Um, but then you can expand as you wish. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. So I can expand later or right away? Your call. Okay, all right, let's go. What, what is the most effective move in your martial arts arsenal? Reverse punch. You can get some smiles on this call. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> who is the most influential martial artist in your life? There's going to have to be a couple of those. Professor Wally J, I'd have to say number one. Mm. And um, Sensei Richard Kim, number two. Uh, these are good ones. Then there are the bad ones, and the bad ones are just as important because they taught me lessons never to do. So, um, you don't need to expand on that because we will come back to those names. Um, um, who do you believe is the most influential martial artist of all, and why? Hmm. That's a tough question. You know, and the only reason we want is because I don't, before my time, I have no idea. I was talking just my time, like in my, my lifetime, influential, I'd probably have to say Bruce Lee. Yep. I mean, when, you know, Enter the Dragon came out, man, I think everybody on the planet wanted to do either Kung Fu or some form of martial art. My internet is unstable crap. Okay. <clears throat> it's a little laggy, but it, your, your words are catching up and we're getting it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what excites you most about the next five years of your training? Going back to Okinawa. Um, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you get there? You're here?
Even he's surprised. Uh, huh? Can I elaborate on that one? Yes, please, <laughs> please. I'll, I'll, I'll do it later. Go ahead. Okay, great. Um, do you have a favorite film and television martial artist? Favorite? Say that again, please. Do you have a favorite film and television martial artist? Jackie Chan. Mm, yeah. Rumble in the Bronx, baby. Well, that's a good um, one. I love that one. I, that's what put me onto him. Um, is there a martial artist living or dead in all of recorded history that you would want to train with the most? To sure, I'm um, If everyone in the world could have the greatest benefit you've gotten from martial arts, whether they train or not, what benefit would they be getting? A positive mindset. The last two questions come as a pair. What is your greatest achievement and your greatest regret? My kids. And not enough time. Oh. There isn't enough time, is there? Nope. Because you can't um, spend with everyone. <laughs> Uh, talk to us about Wally J and Richard Kim. What do you want to uh, tell us about them? Because we, I mean, this could be a whole episode, but. Wow. Professor Wally J is probably the most humblest martial arts person on the planet when he was alive. I mean, he was kind. He was gentle. He was big, larger than life. And I mean, he made you feel like you were the most important person in front of him. Uh, Sensei Clayton, the the small circle jujitsu, mm. like what's different about that compared to other jujitsu in your opinion? If you if you have an opinion on that or a I, I do have an opinion on that. So I, I did some some uh, Japanese jujitsu and I also did some small circle theory jujitsu with Professor Wally J. I was his his um, his kohai or his um, his person he used for demonstrations when he was in Southern Ontario quite a bit. I drove him around a lot and I, I got to know him nice man like we're talking su such a nice like forget he, he wore a gi right just just being a nice human being mm. but the small circle theory jiu-jitsu he and bruce lee elaborated on that because we talk a lot so he elaborated on that with bruce lee bruce lee was creating jeet kundo and he was creating well he was, he was bruce was creating jeet kundo and professor wally j was kind of messing around with um this idea of the small circle, making things smaller and tighter. And this is how he was going to be able to do it. So he elaborated with that, with Bruce Lee on that concept. So the small circle theory is quite interesting because it takes a big movement and shrinks it down into a smaller movement, which I think is really quite effective. And I've actually used some of his techniques in some of my jobs that I was working on, so. I, I love that because I, I think a small, small circle theory applies to all arts it does yeah, yeah. your reverse punch that small circle theory it applies to your reverse punch your roundhouse kick the longest technique you throw you can still apply that small circle theory to that that technique mm -hmm. yeah i i love your answer thank you very much that's really cool that you get to spend a lot of time with him yeah. driving around in a car um oh yeah no for sure i went to san francisco actually sensei talik messaged me on my page my first american tournament that I was competing for Canada was with Sensei Talik, Hanchi Talik, but I'm not really sure. 
uh, Sensei Talek and Phil McCall and myself were on the same team. And uh, I won my match handily because I had some jujitsu experience fighting in that competition. So. So, sorry, Ben. I, <laughs> I don't mean to keep cutting you off, but Sensei Clayton keeps mentioning names of people that I really like and Just admire. Keep, keep the train going, yeah. Yeah. One of the guys that I would like to get on this podcast at some point would be Sensei Phil McCall. I think uh, he would be an amazing person. I love mm -hmm. that guy. Every interaction I've ever had with him has been amazing. Anything you want to expand upon him, like Sensei McCall or thoughts on him? He beat me up a lot in Don Warner's dojo. Mm -hmm. Literally, because when you spar, like he was talking about sparring nights, he's a big guy. I was like 135 pounds or something like that. In the dojo, that guy had me in the corner, on against the wall, you know, doing whatever he could. Because you can have three, you can, you, you can reach your arm out and throw, throw a person into the corner and then and kick and punch them. In a karate tournament, that was a totally different story. That was my, that was my fish bank, my fish bowl. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I, I, saw, I saw him uh, with Sensei Copeland, actually, just before the pandemic. Right. Uh, was the last time I saw him at uh, Sensei Chikrovsky's tournament. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, still looks great. Yeah, tall too, man, tall. Oh, man, yeah, love that guy. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, also, Ben. No, that's this great. Tell us about Richard Kim. Wow. He's a, he's a, he's a sensei sensei. Okay. When I, when I say that, I mean, he's, he, he's the one who gave us philosophy of the martial arts. He gave us stories. He gave us direction. He gave us purpose mm. with the Daini Pambatokokai, respect, compassion, and gratitude, respect, compassion, and gratitude. And he taught those and he instilled those into me to be able to be part of my culture and my dojo. He wrote some great books with some amazing little antidotal, antidotal stories, which I think every student should own. Mm -hmm. The classical man, mm -hmm. everyone should own that one mm -hmm. for sure. And then he has another one, The Weaponless Warrior, another great little book, small, small book, great book. But he was, I mean, he invited me to a camp in San Diego with Nishiyama Sensei and to go from, Whereas I was in New Westminster at the time, it was in the early 90s. He invited me to go to this camp in San Diego. I got there, there was probably about 150 Batoko Kai members and 250 Shotokan people mm. from around the world at the University of San Diego. So it was like 300, 400 people in this, in this camp. It was amazing to meet so many wonderful instructors. Um, Shirai Sensei with her, Kasaki Sensei, Nishiyama was teaching. So they had different blocks of stuff that you can actually go to. Sensei Kim says, you go to the sparring one. Because <laughs> he was doing weapons and stuff. No, you go to the sparring one. And there was, I mean, I met a lot of amazing people who are still friends to this day, right? But there are some crackpots too in karate too, you know, they, that were in part of all different organizations. But Benson, uh, Benson trained in Nishiyama's dojo for about a year. Who did? I did. I trained there down on Olympic Boulevard in Los Angeles when I first okay. moved there, 2003. Right. Nice. And then uh, I, I loved it. He was incredible. And wow. then they. Okay. Yeah. Um, he would have been in his 80s by then. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yep. Did he use yeah. a megaphone? Uh, no, but he would just sit in his office and smoke. And then he'd shuffle out. Yep. And then he'd start class. Yep. And he would just. And he would really focus on that long, yeah. slow, hard beginning. And then that whippy fast hard end. Yeah. I got along great with him. Um, you know, eventually his club said, 
you need to either leave or do our style the way we yeah. do it. Yeah. And I said, I, I, I hear you. And you're obviously going to say that. And, and I am going to respectfully go, but I loved my time there and, and I, and I honor it. And Sensei and Hanshi Legacy came down and visited as well. Yeah. I remember uh, Sensei Clayton. So when Sean moved from Guelph and moved there, he called me and he was like, Hey, there's this guy out here. Uh, his name is Nishiyama. Have you heard of him? <laughs> like, his, I could train there. And I'm like, if you can train in yeah, Nishiyama sure. Sensei's dojo, you should go train there. Yeah. And then the other kind of funny thing was when Sean took me there and the long dojo, when Nishiyama came out of his office from smoking his cigarettes, <clears throat> I stood at attention. And then Sean, being a good student, stood at attention. And Nishiyama Sensei started shuffling towards us. And I said, this was a mistake, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, because it took him like, 10 minutes to shuffle up to us. But then once he got on the floor, he was mm. a different person. Different like, person. Absolutely. Yeah. It reminded me, and this is a totally separate reason, but I remember I was doing some stage managing for uh, a band and Ozzy Osbourne was guesting with them one night and his Parkinson's had already taken hold. And so he's sort of like shuffle up. He's like, oh, which way do I want to go to the stage? And, I, and I'm like, uh, you know, Ozzy, I got you, man. And then he'd get on stage and it was like it was 1971 all over again. Yeah. No, no stutter. V fucking like one of the best live performances I've ever seen. Comes off stage. Uh, Sharon, Sharon. And it was just like, holy shit. Like he's built for this thing. Yeah. I think what you're saying is that Nishiyama Sensei was the Ozzy Osbourne of karate. I think that's I think what I'm hearing. Yeah. No, just such a treat. Um, I want to ask you something. Um, Sensei, before we, you know, lose time, because time is real, as we talked about, yeah. you said something that I really think is great, but I also want to dig it open for people listening and myself. You said, uh, you know, a positive mindset. Yeah. Right. You said that's the, the gift that you've gotten that you'd give everyone. What does that look like for you? And how can you instill it in a deep and real way into someone else? I, th I think through communication. Like when you're communicating with your students and they have difficulty saying, well, I can't do this and I don't think I can do that. When they're having negative thoughts, you can help them through that process during your classes. Okay. So giving them a positive mindset, you can do anything that you want. Just put the effort in it. Effort equals success. You know, putting effort into your mindset, trying to, if you think a negative thought, try to have a more positive thought. And I do have to catch myself on a regular basis because we're bombarded with negativity on a regular basis every single day. There's more hate out there than there is positivity. So we really have to work hard on that. And in my dojo, it's really, really important that when you come into the dojo, you try to leave that outside of the dojo. Because when I walk into my dojo and I walk out of my dojo floor, I am the happiest person sick or mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what's going on in my world outside of the dojo. I am, this class is gonna be the most important class I'll ever teach because it's important to me to, to project that mindset on my students, right? And not be, I'm the leader. I'm, the, I'm supposed to lead by example, so. Mm -hmm. um, let me go Sensei Dolphin, then Sensei Suino on this question. Is a positive mindset important? And if you agree, how do you instill it? I, I, I'm not sure really how to answer that question completely. I can say, for me, just Sensei Suino and I had a conversation. I've been talking to Sensei Legacy every day because 
I've been feeling fairly insecure and kind of negative in my brain about this event that we're trying to promote and get going. Don't want to let people down. And, you know, just start thinking about all the bad stuff. And then today I just, I switched something in my brain and just said, I get to do all this stuff. I'm a person who gets to be in this position to do these things. I'm a person who gets to be in the position to, if I fail at this, I'm the person who gets to be in the position to actually fail at it. Those are all positive. And I guess in the dojo, I think you learn that. Um, I think you don't learn it through success. I think you learn it through failure. I think you learn your positive mindset through failure. And I think your teacher, if you have a good sensei, they're the ones who are like, this is not catastrophic. What did you learn from this? Pick yourself back up. You can't get up. I'm going to help you get up. I don't want to fight anymore. Too bad. You're getting in there. You're going to fight. Like, I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you a hug in the end. You know, Ben's, I think I even said it to you. When you were insecure about competing in a tournament, I'm like, I'm going to love you no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be there for you. And the fact that you sacked up and you're going to go in the tournament, I've got your back completely. And I think probably what Sensei Clayton said, communicating that to somebody, mm -hmm. right? That you have somebody who loves and cares and respects you and they got your back, win, lose, or draw. They got your back, right? Um, Love that. Love that. I'm really glad I asked this of everybody. Sensei Suino? Well, you know, uh, you know, I created this event called Permission that Randy's been a guest speaker at three times. And it's a whole, it's a 12-hour crucible of positive mindset, right? Mm. Well, where did all that come from? It came from martial arts. The whole idea that there's a system out there, a framework that you can work your way through and you're going to have successes and failures and mentors and guides, like you said, Randy, and, you know, and blood and, and sweat and tears. And um, the, whole, the whole framework of a lifetime in martial arts is a positive mindset framework. And, you know, I mm. love Sensei, uh, Clayton Sensei, I love that you, that you know that that you mentioned that uh, it was a topic I wanted to tee up, and we're going to run out of time. But the whole idea that you know you you came up in the in the Eastern Karate, you know, in the bad old days of blood, sweat, and tears, and you have this wonderful arc of a of a of a of a somebody who spent their lifetime in the martial arts, right? And it's come to giving back, contribution, positive mindset. Uh, I think we're blessed to be in a in a field that lets us that lets us experience that. Hmm. Um, I love that. The only, the only thing I want to add, and everybody used this word, and so I'm not really adding it, um, is failure as such an important component. Like I spent my, up until I was 28, 30, believing that a positive mindset meant immediately turning failure into a reframed way of looking at it. And what I had to learn is that eventually that'll be true, but I have to go through the truth of having lost. I have to mm -hmm. go through the truth of not being good at this or the truth of that person having left or my own demons, because eventually it'll all be for a reason. And eventually it'll be something that will have a positive perspective and framing. But I had to accept the truth of pain and failure and not end result that it will one day be a good thing. And then all of a sudden it became a good thing. Yeah, Sensei Copeland put in, which I think is a, a little bit of a spin. Um, you learn from experience that it's never as bad as you, what you think it is, mm. which I think is one of those things, right? Mm. Like you're, you always think it's going to be way, way worse than it actually ends up being. 
right? Your mind builds it into something. Sensei, do you want to tee that topic up or is it too big a topic? Sensei, Sweeno. Positive mindset? Oh, go ahead. Uh, actually, I had something I wanted to ask sure. Sensei Clayton. Sure. Of all the martial artists in the world that you want to train with, you picked one of my I'm a, I'm a fanboy of very few people in this world, but I'm a big fanboy of Toshiro Mifune. Tell me more about that. Well, the, the reason why is, I mean, I've seen so many of his movies and I, and what I feel, what I feel, I get a feeling from watching his movies, the intensity, the insincerity, the honesty, the actual commitment to the, to the art, right? Yes. It's just, it's just, it's one of those, I, I want to be there. I want to be able to feel that. Right? I mean, that's, 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 there's nothing better than feeling something. I mean, you, I can watch it all day long, all day long. Yeah. yeah. Was it, uh, was it Hidden Fortress or Yojimbo? I don't remember. Do you remember that scene yeah. where he commandeers somebody's horse and he jumps on that horse, he's standing up in the stirrups and he's got the sword up in the house. you remember that? <laughs> yeah. And he charges into that, into that uh, village or whatever. I mean, like, if that doesn't change you, having seen that scene, right, among many others. <laughs> I like when he I like when he kicked the crap out of Charles Bronson. Oh yeah. <laughs> Have you guys ever seen the challenge with Scott Glenn? Yeah. That was a good movie. Good that modern good. day movie. Good yeah. movie. Yeah, I like Scott Glenn. Yeah. Great actor. Yep. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so Sensei, what we do is a thing called around the horn, but we're 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 just about there. Yeah. But you said, and I think there might be some poignancy to it, or maybe maybe I'm maybe not. God said, you're here, question oh, mark. Yeah. And you said, we'll get back to that. <laughs> okay, so, so my, my, my mom is quite religious. And, you know, I mean, I, I love my mom to death. Uh, we have different opinions based on the information that I received from my sensei, sensei Kim, you know, heaven, earth, all of that kind of stuff. So my mom says to me, if you don't take Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're not going to go to heaven, right? And I went, oh. Well, mom, I got friends in both places. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I wasn't that funny though to my mom. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, like, yeah, it would be like, you're, I mean, I got lots of friends. I got good friends and bad friends like we all may have, right? It's just, uh, it is what it is. So. I take wisdom anywhere I can get it, but uh, Lady Gaga has a great line. It is <laughs> everybody knows your name. Right? And I'm like, yeah, man, if everybody knows me, man, it might be the right spot for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I'd say we do go around the horn. We talk about our time with you uh, yeah. and then we'll give you the last word, after which we'll do a little bit of housekeeping for uh, for some stuff coming up. But um, why don't you start us off, Sensei Suino, to tell us about your time tonight. Loved it. Loved it. I Sensei, you just you, you hit on so many great points, uh, uh, and I and I just I love the arc. I love the arc from a from a young fighter, you know, to somebody who who grows up and is a mentor and a leader to others in a positive direction. And and um, anytime somebody says they spent time with Richard Kim, that's always that's always uh, a telltale sign that there's like an iceberg, right? There's, mm. there's what you see and there's everything below it. And uh, that's something I'd like to, a can I'd like to open. Oh. Uh, if we ever, if we ever, uh, if we ever have a chance to meet, right. I'd love to, love to chat a little bit more about that. 
and open a can and open the can. Yeah, right. Uh, Sensei Dolphin? Yeah, before I give my thoughts, Sensei Clayton, I want to let you know that um, Sensei Legacy had uh, Sensei Kim come to the University of Western Ontario and do a lecture. Uh, and a part of the lecture was a demonstration where some of us did some fighting, some of us did some kata, and Sensei Suino was there, and Sensei Suino did some iaido. And it's, it's ingrained in my mind. There was like about 300 of us sitting in this auditorium and Sensei Suino is doing his cuts and everybody's just kind of quiet. And then all of a sudden he goes, Sensei Suino lets out a kiai. Aye? And literally every single person in the auditorium stood up and then sat back down again. It was the most crazy thing ever. And Richard Kim, Sensei Kim was just like, you could just tell he was like, because he was standing on the stage and he could see everybody stand up and sit down. So that's, uh, that's a, a unique experience that Sensei Suino has with, uh, with Sensei Kim. But I always write uh, notes, Sensei Clayton. And I'll be honest with you, um, mostly just because of all the names you're talking about, these are people that Sensei Legacy's talked to me about. I've met many of them. I'm, I'm friends with some of them. Um, but I want to say, I think it's cool that you joined for a girl. You're the first one who said, I joined for a girl. And after a month, you were the only one left that you joined with. Um, that's pretty cool. Uh, your very first night you sparred and you were 12 years old. You'll just need to get back to that. Like, first night <laughs> sparring. Uh, um, uh, Sensei De Lorenza, like, you talk about what a like it's really clear that he was a very pivotal person. Um, I know Sensei Legacy really loves that guy too. I think he's a great human being, great martial artist. So it was really nice to hear you talk about him. Um, it was good to talk about what a black belt is. Um, I think we're all around the same thing with some slight differences. Um, mm -hmm. I really liked your thoughts on that too with Who's hands-on? Why do you need to be hands-on? These are good things to consider. I think I'm going to be thinking about those things a lot um, over the coming days and weeks. Uh, six weeks in, you find yourself in Hull, Quebec as a white belt fighting. White belt. Yep. Yeah, first tournament, and then you just wanted to win trophies after that. That's awesome, right? Loved hearing stuff about Eastern Karate and Vince and Joey uh, Castellano, and again, Sensei Hines and Sensei Baisley, like those names coming up for me is like, that's important things uh, to hear. You know, you said something in the beginning too that I, it really resonated with me when you said you just wanted to be like those people, right? Like you just wanted to be like them. Like you didn't want to be better than them. You just wanted to be like them. You just want to, that's something, if anybody's watching this podcast, you should meditate on that for a while. Like you should meditate on the people around you and do you want to be better than them or do you just want to be like them, right? Mm. Um, I think it's pretty freaking cool that you had 200 people in your world championship black belt division. That's, that's an awesome thing. Uh, reverse punch. Yeah, everybody is smiling because you're in good company. Most of the people of the 68 times we've done this podcast, the majority have said a reverse punch <laughs> or they've said, just don't get in that situation. Um, I'm on the reverse punch side. Uh, 
really nice to hear stuff about uh, Professor Wally J. I really like appreciated yeah. hearing those thoughts on him. Uh, I've heard a lot about him. Uh, nice to hear new perspectives from somebody who spent a lot of time. Uh, nice to hear the things that you said about Phil McCall. Obviously, I, I held it up when you were talking about uh, Richard Kim. Like tonight, I read an excerpt out of this book to my students tonight when I, we just knelt down at the front and I just read a portion of a chapter to inspire them. And uh, I couldn't agree with you more that he is uh, the sensei of the senseis. And uh, yeah, I, I'm not going to say, I hope I get to meet you. Or I hope I get to see you again. Cause I know, <laughs> I know I'm going to, I know we're going to see each other again and I can't wait to see you again. And uh, yeah, I said, my daughter's out there. So the next time I go out to BC, I'm going to be looking you up to train or have dinner or have a glass of wine, whatever, play golf, whatever it is you want to do. <laughs> Thank you for coming on tonight, Sensei. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Uh, I just really want to add um, real quick, Sensei, you know, for me, um, I was thinking about the, the, the word uncle, you know, like as, as someone who trained with Sensei Kim and our instructor, Hanshi Legacy, did as well. That means there's sort of an uncle vibe. And it felt like that while we were chatting today, you know, some, something so familiar about all the stuff we talked about and all your approach to it. And, and what Sensei Sweeno said, the idea that there's that, that philosophy underneath I actually did write down girl as well, because I remember once I had a sponsee in Alcoholics Anonymous who was like, uh, Sean, I, I only want to go to the meeting tomorrow at noon because there's a girl there who's really hot. And I, I feel like that's um, not spiritually correct. I was like, dude, whatever gets you there, because she won't be there. <laughs> You'll get the meeting. And he calls me the next day. He's like, I went, she wasn't there. And it was a good meeting. And it was like, whatever gets us in the door, gets us in the door. It's a beautiful thing. Um yeah, and I, I really just want to say I love the way you talk about things. I love the way without any axe to grind, you give your opinion. Without any axe to grind, your perspective so clear because of the life you've led in this art, not because of some beef, this, that, but it's, it's really beautiful too. And, and, it, and it leads us to such an engaged podcast. You know, we're, we're just, we just want to crack open everything you said because we're actually talking about it. We're not pointing right. at it. And it's a beautiful thing. Um, so I just want to say thanks. Tell us how you enjoyed the night or what you want to go out on anything. Oh, it was great. You know, I really enjoyed it. Like I, uh, I was really nervous about it. Never done it before. Never done anything like this. But I really enjoyed the fact that you guys made me feel comfortable coming into the into the session. And um, yeah, I appreciate it. And I'm sure all the other people that are out there got to hear some stories they'd never heard from me before, including my students. So I thank you for that. We're here for you and we're here for the listeners and we just get to be the conduits who benefit as well. Um, Sensei Dolphin, tell us what's coming up, especially about this weekend. Oh yeah. So this weekend we got a big, big training camp. Uh, the people teaching at that training camp are going to be uh, Sensei Legacy is teaching at it. Sensei Terrian is teaching at it. Uh, uh, Sensei uh, Alan Sai is coming in from Belgium. He's teaching at it. Uh, Sensei is teaching at it. Sensei Copeland is teaching at it. Those are the headliners. And then you get to the other uh, level, the people like me who will be teaching at it. <laughs> but uh, I'm super proud that I'm going to be sharing the floor with those, those people. You know, actually, Sensei uh, Clayton, you had said, you know, I just want to be like those people. To me, that's a measure this weekend is mm. 
in some small way, I've worked myself to a level where I can teach on the floor with those types of people that I've always looked up to and I've always admired. And I don't care if there's only one person on my mat. Uh, I'm super happy to be on the floor with those people. And mm. so that's what we got going on this weekend. Um, probably going to have somewhere around 200 people on the floor. So that's also very good. Nice to have around 200 people on the floor. I think right now when I checked, we have about, I think it's about 15 or 20 different schools are registered now, pre-registered to come. 15 amazing. or 20. I mean, so, amazing. Yeah, that's awesome to have 15 or 20 schools coming in. Um, yeah. And then next week, uh, since it's Jean Frenette, who I think the rest of us will probably just be quiet while you and him talk about movies and martial arts and we'll just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause uh, he's the only martial artist I know, Sean, other than you, that's done more movies than you um, that I actually know. Right. Cause Amazing. I think he's done like 57 movies or something like that as a Amazing. stunt coordinator or on yeah. some level and all that. Yeah. And if you want to see a guy kick, yeah, go go on YouTube and type in uh, Sensei Jean Fernet and listen, watch him do his kicking routine to Eye of the Tiger, and you're going to see something that you can't do. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's awesome. Thanks, Sensei. And by the way, just like as if I need to say this, but the teachers are obvious, but the idea that there's going to be 20 other schools there. Like we're, I think we're in a heyday of martial arts right now where we're sharing information and we're not sort of being proprietary about, oh, the fucking club down the road. Like it's a beautiful, beautiful time. And I, uh, the idea that you're going to get to train, not just with the instructors, but next to this community that mm -hmm. we're all going to be, you know, standing here in 10, 15, 20 years. And these are going to be people you're going to become friends with. These are people you're going to become trudging partners with. Um, so I'm as excited for who I'm going to be training next to. Uh, as well as who I'm going to be training in front of. And I think that's something really cool. Um, and, and speaking of, you know, teams and, and people you trudge with, uh, this show doesn't exist without our trudging partners behind the scenes. And that's Robert Shlumsky, Mike Russell, Victoria Pfeff, Justin Shea, Alden Adair, Andre Sedeshev. It just keeps getting better and better. And I'm, by that, I mean the promotion, the technical aspect, the fact that we're streaming these different things. So thanks to them. And thanks to you all for listening and tuning in because this grows because of you. Uh, I think we'd probably be doing it either way, but it gets more exciting knowing you're taking the ride with us. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Safe travels, Sensei Clayton. Thank you.